Well, good morning. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and get it out, open up. We're going to be in Esther chapter 9 this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through 28, which is close to the end of the chapter, but we're going to save just a couple verses to put with chapter 10 next week, uh, which will be our last week in the book of Esther. So this week, um, most of chapter 9, next week, the end of 9, and then chapter 10 is only three verses, so we'll do those together. While you get yourself situated... um, Two things I want to do really quickly. The first one is this. Uh, today is Brian Bliss's birthday. Did he slip out of here? He's like 25 years old today. There he is. He also, he also just recently celebrated 12 years of being here at, at LCF leading us in worship. And so if you get a chance to say happy birthday to Brian, uh, go ahead and do that. Also, it was uh, our keyboard player today, Ryan Whitmer. Brian and Ryan share a birthday, so it's also Ryan Whitmer's birthday today. Um, the second thing is this. As kind of just a general announcement so that uh, everyone in our congregation is aware, but also specifically if you have children, um, beginning on Sunday, September 6th, so two weeks from today, we're going to start phasing in uh, some kids point classes over the course of a few weeks. And so that, that's going to build on itself a little bit. Parents, if you've got kids that are of kids point age, you should have received an email. So those details are in your email inbox. But the general way that it's going to work is that beginning on September 6th, only at the eight o'clock service, we're going to start by uh, having our like younger grades, not the nursery but our younger aged kids, a couple of classes with limited space um, for each one of those classrooms. And then over some successive weeks, we'll start to build that out toward our you know, third, fourth, fifth graders. And so you've got details on what that's going to look like, what the timeline is for adding more classes as we go on. Also the details about what the protocols and procedures are going to be for checking kids in and how many kids can be in each classroom. Um, so on September 6th, that is going to begin, but it will only be at the eight o'clock service. And so if uh, one of the reasons that you've not returned to uh, worshiping with us in person is because you're a little intimidated by having your kids in the service, know that starting uh, on September 6th, there will be Kids Point, and we'll start to kind of build that out over a number of weeks. Um, As just another note, if you are at home, you've been worshiping with us online for the last four or five months, and one of the reasons you haven't returned is because you're a little intimidated by having your kids in the service. Um, I'll just speak for myself. Having our children in here in services has not been at all a problem. In fact, it's it's been um, a, a fun experience. I'm not a parent, so I'm not trying to manage those kids. But from up here, it's been a blast. Um... Some, I get to see kids doing all sorts of fun things in the service while I'm up here. And so um, if that's a reason why you haven't, haven't returned, um, talk to one of our families that has about how it is that they've made that work for themselves or consider coming at eight o'clock starting in the next few weeks as we build that out. Um, let's pray again, and then we'll jump into Esther chapter nine. God, thank you for this morning, Lord, for the chance to gather together as a congregation here uh, in person, but also with the folks that are joining us online right now. God, just to celebrate the gospel, to remember what it is that you've done 
on our behalf through Jesus Christ. God, to rest in the truth of the gospel, to rejoice in the truth of the gospel. Lord, I pray that throughout our time together this morning, whether in your word or in interaction with one another, in prayer, God, in uh, song again later in our service, God, I pray that this morning would be a chance to to do that, to truly celebrate, to take comfort in the truth of the gospel, to be reminded of the truth of the gospel, um, to celebrate what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that anytime we're together as a church uh, family, anytime we approach scripture, whether here on a Sunday morning or on our own one, one morning or evening throughout the week, whenever it is that we we do that in our own schedules, God. Whenever it is that we're in small groups or in conversations with other believers, would our eyes always be turned to the gospel? Would we always remember and rest and rejoice in the truth of what Jesus has done for us on the cross? And so, God, would that be our heart's disposition this morning as we uh, see what it is that you have to say to us through Esther chapter nine? God, would it be our heart's disposition as followers of Jesus all the time? We pray this in his matchless and holy name, amen. As we get started here, I want you to kind of, in your mind here, rehearse the plot of Beauty and the Beast. That We're gonna come back to that in just a minute. So um, just kind of work through that uh, in your own head while I give you a little bit of a roadmap for what this morning is going to look like. Esther chapter nine, we're gonna take in three, three sort of pieces here. We're gonna work just with verse number one first because the author of the book of Esther kind of shows their hand in terms of what is, what is, how is this whole book set up? What is the point that the author is really trying to draw out for us? Then we're gonna go two to 17 and we're gonna deal with it in two different ways. Uh, the first way we're gonna deal with it is like purely intellectually. Like if we were robots and we were just gonna input the data from Esther chapter nine, what would, what would we input and what would we take away from that? And then we're gonna work with it emotionally because verses two through 17 can be a little bit challenging emotionally. And then we're gonna look at verses 18 down to 28 and uh, see some kind of gospel comfort that we can draw out of this passage as we look at the way that the Israelite people celebrated their deliverance. What, how can we take that? What does it look like for us to do that in relation to the gospel today? So verse one, verses two through 17, then verses 18 through 28. And this is going to be the landing spot this morning. That the beauty of the gospel exists in this phrase, just the opposite happened. Look at Esther 9, verse 1. The king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. On that day, when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. The entire book of Esther is built on that that idea, that motif, just the opposite happened happened. You can start at the very beginning of the book of Esther and work your way to the very end, and that statement could be applied in numerous places. Vashti is queen, then just the opposite happened. Esther is an orphaned Jewish girl, and then just the opposite happened, and she becomes queen. Mordecai saves the king and is in line for a promotion, then just the opposite happens, and Haman is promoted instead. 
Esther should die when she approaches the king. Then just the opposite happens. He extends his scepter and she lives. Mordecai and the Jewish people are weeping, fasting, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Then just the opposite happens and they're feasting and rejoicing and celebrating. Haman rises to power and prestige. Then just the opposite happens and he comes to ruin. The Persian people assemble to kill the Jews. Then Esther 9.1, just the opposite happens. Think about the very start of the movie Beauty and the Beast. This old beggar woman arrives at this large castle and a prince answers the door and she asks for his kindness and he refuses it based entirely upon her appearance. She asks a second time. He refuses it again. And then there's this switching of places that happens. She casts you know, a, a curse onto him and he becomes the beast and she transforms before his eyes into this beautiful young woman. Just the opposite happens. And then you could actually take basically the entirety of the movie Beauty and the Beast and watch all the times where something flips and the opposite of what you would expect ends up taking place. One of the uh, commentaries that I've used as a resource throughout this series is a really wonderfully put together, uh, basically, series of sermons by a man named David Strain. And he encapsulates the entirety of those sermons under the heading, The Beauty and the Beast, because of the way that these reversals take place in both that movie and also in the book of Esther. And this is the primary place where the author of the book of Esther says, here's what I've been trying to show you the whole time. Just the opposite happens. The author puts it into words. And the question we have to ask ourselves and what we've been asking ourselves throughout the whole book is why would those things take place? None of them make sense in general. None of them make sense against the backdrop of whom of who King Ahasuerus is. None of them make sense against the backdrop of like what we know about the Persian empire in general. And yet there are all these striking reversals. And despite the name of God never being mentioned, what we're supposed to understand is that the only reason any of those things would happen is because a sovereign and providential God is directing them to happen in the way that they are. Why? So he can save his people. He can preserve the Jewish people, the Israelite people, and ultimately, the line of the Messiah. They happen because God is working to fulfill his promises. He's acting in accordance with his purposes. He's guiding the course of human events in the pursuit of those promises and purposes. And he's doing so in ways that are completely in line with the fullness of who he is and the fullness of his character. That's important, as we're going to see in just a moment. Look with me at verses 2 through 17. If you've got your Bible open, go ahead and follow along with me. In each of King Ahasuerus' provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Fear of them fell on every nationality. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the royal civil administrators aided the Jews because they feared Mordecai. For Mordecai exercised great power in the palace, and his Fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. The Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including Parshandetha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poretha, Adalia, Eridatha, uh, Parmeshta, 
Arizai, Eridai, and Visatha. They killed these 10 sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. However, they did not seize any plunder. On that day, the number of the people killed in the fortress of Susa was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, in the fortress of Susa, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, including Haman's 10 sons. What have they done in the rest of the royal provinces? Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek will be done. Esther answered, if it pleases the king, may the Jews who are in Susa also have tomorrow to carry out today's law. And may the bodies of Haman's 10 sons be hung on the gallows. The king gave the orders for this to be done. So a law was announced in Susa, and they hung the bodies of Haman's 10 sons. The Jews in Susa assembled again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not seize any plunder. The rest of the Jews in the royal provinces assembled, defended themselves, and gained relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not seize any plunder. They fought on the 13th day of the month of Adar and rested on the 14th, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. One commitment that I make to both myself and to uh, our congregation on a week-in, week-out basis from up here in front is that I don't ever want to be disingenuous with a passage of Scripture. I don't ever want to dodge a passage of Scripture because it's difficult or it harbors within it questions that are hard to answer. I don't ever want to skirt around a passage. And so we preach the way that we do, from beginning to end through books of the Bible or large passages, taking every verse as it comes to us and addressing the truth of what does it say about who God is, about the gospel and who we are and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so that assures a few things. Number one, it means that the person that's up here, whether me or someone else on our teaching team, gets to handle difficult passages of Scripture in the full run of their context in their, initial, their original setting. So it's easier to handle a difficult passage when you see the way that you arrived at it. The other benefit to our congregation is that it means that whether myself or anyone else who's up here, you don't just hear about the pet topics that we like to talk about. You see the fullness of Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, narrative, prophetic, epistle. You see all of that over the course of time. This passage, particularly, is a little bit challenging. It's challenging emotionally. So what I want to do first is just handle these 16 verses from a strictly intellectual standpoint. What do we see that God is doing here in the middle of this passage? Then I want to circle back around and say, how do we handle the difficulty of this emotionally? So intellectually, if we were robots and we just like could input some data and have no emotional response to it, here's what we have. Remember the 30,000 foot view. God is working sovereignly and providentially to preserve his people, the line of the Messiah, to fulfill his promises to Abraham. And so in that, we have two groups, those opposed to God who are represented and led by Haman and those who are God's people, the Israelites. What happens here in Esther 9, verses 2 through 17, is that a battle is waged in which the people of God are saved and the opponents of God receive judgment delivered by his people essentially. On the surface, the, the general idea of that doesn't sound all that out of the ordinary. We understand that God will judge all people. Those who are opposed to him will receive just, fair, righteous judgment, and those who have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ will receive the rewards of Christ's righteousness that covers them. 
two groups of people, those opposed to God, those who are God's people. Let me zoom in like a little further, kind of the 15,000 foot view. If you've been tracking along in the series back all the way in Esther chapter three, when we first met Haman, Jim Stites talked about kind of the tension that exists between Haman's ancestors and the Israelite people. Haman, we're told multiple times, is the son of Hamadatha, but we're also told he's a distant relative of a person named Agog, who was king of the Amalekites. If you're a note taker, jot down 1 Samuel chapter 15. You can go back and read the account of the Israelites and the Amalekites. More notably in that account is a description of King Saul, who's ruling the Israelites, and King Agog, the king of the Amalekites. What happens there is that God commands his people, the Israelites, to destroy the Amalekites because of the way that they had opposed the Israelite people earlier. The Israelites do this, but Saul spares their king, King Agog, the same King Agog that's listed as Haman's forefather. And as a result of that decision, as well as another, Saul is ultimately removed as king. That makes space for King David to burst onto the scene later in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Saul and his sons are eventually killed by the Philistines. Their bodies are hung outside the wall of a Philistine city for all to see. That is, if you go and read that in 1 Samuel 15 as well as 1 Samuel 22 where Saul and his sons are killed, it is kind of a grisly affair. It's brutal and it offends our modern sensibilities. It's hard to read. Go back to Esther chapter nine and let's take like the ground level view. What did we see happen to Haman, his sons and the Persian people who amassed to kill the Jews? Just the opposite of 1 Samuel chapter 15. In total, around 76,000 people lose their lives over a two-day period. Haman's sons are killed. Their bodies are displayed next to their fathers for all to see. Not only does the opposite happen in this immediate story, but the opposite happens in terms of the larger narrative of the Old Testament. Again, intellectually, you can look at that and say, okay, sounds good. Emotionally, it's a little more challenging. It's why it's important that we always think about what God does in terms of who God is. In fact, that's the primary way we should think about God's activity. We think about what God does through the lens of who God is. So let's just think about his character. He's righteous and just and holy. That means he will judge those who are opposed to him. And yet at the same time, he is kind and loving. He's gracious and merciful. He's often slow to bring that judgment. That's a sign of his mercy and his grace. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's patient. He's also faithful and true. Means that his promises that he makes throughout scripture, he will bring them to pass. In order to be fully faithful and fully true, he must do that. And so he does. And here, his promise to bring through Abraham the means by which all the nations of the earth will be blessed is preserved. And that finds its fulfillment ultimately in Jesus. All of that makes sense. From a 30,000 foot view, we can say, yes, there's God being faithful to his character. From a 15,000 foot view, from the ground level close up, we can say, yes, there is God being faithful to his character. Emotionally though, sometimes it would be better if we didn't see the way that the sausage is made. What on the surface 
seems like a very happy story here in the book of Esther gets kind of punctuated on this sour note. Like Esther goes from being this wonderful sort of courageous hero type figure to looking kind of vindictive. 500 people die in Susa. This battle rages out in the rest of the kingdom. The king comes to her and says, here's what's happened. What do you want? And Esther says, let's run it back again tomorrow. What? All of a sudden, it kind of looks like Esther, as well as Mordecai, and by extension, the Jewish people, have switched places with Haman. Whereas they were oppressed and fearful, now all of a sudden, it looks like they're kind of the the oppressor. They're definitely the ones that are inducing fear now. They've switched spots. And right off the page here, there are some fair questions to ask. Why are there times when God commands his people to kill? That's part of the reason why it's hard to read this chunk in Esther. It's why it's difficult to read all of the book of Joshua and chunks of the book of Judges or First and Second Samuel or First and Second Kings. It creates within us a sort of emotional tension that's very hard to deal with. Why did almost 76,000 people have to lose their lives in this story? Couldn't a sovereign and a providential God have just caused none of the Persian people to line up to fight the Jews? Remember, that was the edict. You can defend yourselves against those who amass to kill you. Okay, well, couldn't God have just caused in the hearts of all the Persian people none of them to show up on that day and then no one dies? Or couldn't a God who is sovereign and providential have just had all the nation of Persia come to repentance like he did to Nineveh in the days of Jonah? And while we're thinking along those lines, today, couldn't a sovereign and a providential God have people from every tribe, nation, and tongue come to faith in him and just send Jesus back right now and put an end to all the brokenness and the suffering that we see in the world today? Those are really fair questions. This is where I don't ever want to be disingenuous. I don't have concrete answers. You, You can't pour over, I mean, you can pour over scripture, but you can't come to clean answers on those kinds of emotional tensions that exist within some of the Bible. It doesn't discredit who God is. It doesn't change the nature of the gospel. But there are moments where there are difficult things for us to wrestle with. There are some positives that happen in this passage. Remember, the edict said that they could kill, annihilate, and destroy not only those who lined up to harm them, but also the women and children of those peoples and take all their plunder. Notice in Esther 9, 2 to 17, it doesn't say that any women and children were killed. And it also reminds us multiple times they took none of the plunder. So there's something positive to be said for the way that the Israelites handled themselves in this particular moment. It's hard to wrestle through these things. Reading the book of Joshua is hard for that reason. Our sensibilities are often offended, not just by what happens, but by the way that it happens. In this era of of human history, it was very normal for one army to defeat another and then take the prominent people from that defeated army and hang their bodies for all of the world to see as a means of scaring anyone else into ever attacking them. We read this and think it sounds heinous. Someone from this time would have read it and said, that's just how we do things. It's hard for us. Our limited knowledge, our limited view makes it impossible to see a bigger picture than the devastation that jumps right off the page. And if we're willing to read these Old Testament narratives 
against the reality that they are telling us of real people living real lives in real places at real times in history, then there ought to be something inside of us that stirs with a sense of grief for the people who lost their lives, for the families who lost someone. That ought to happen inside of us. The struggle is with the question, now what do I I do with that? A number of years ago, three or four years ago, when we as a, as a whole church were walking through the Bible initiative where we took all of scripture, Genesis to Revelation, and we covered it over the course of a year. And our small group um, was walking through all of those passages alongside the church on Sunday morning. And we came to the book of Judges and God's command that the Israelite people go into the land of Canaan and, and eliminate the people that live there. And I'll I'll never forget like the few weeks that we spent or the couple weeks that we spent in the book of Judges, there was a a woman in our small group who just really had a hard time with what she was reading. And we probably spent like 10 hours of time, whether at small group, on the phone, she came into the office one day talking about how could this happen? And we're I'm trying to do the intellectual thing. Well, let me just tell you what's going on here. God's going to judge people uh, at the end of all things anyway, right? And she would say yes. And I would say, and sometimes in the Old Testament, we see God use earthly temporal means to bring about that judgment upon people who are opposed to him. It's a physical representation of what is going to happen ultimately anyway. And in my mind, I would think I answered the question. And she would say, I still am not okay with this. She was wrestling with the emotional realities that get pricked inside of us by some of these passages. Where we ended up landing and where I've kind of thought about this over the years is that we have to be able to approach all of Scripture with a few reminders kind of rolling around in our minds. The first one is this. God is good. We think about what God does through the lens of who he is. That means that God's righteousness, justice, and holiness are on display in the things that he does. It means that his love and kindness and gracious and mercy are on display in the things that he does. It means his faithfulness and his truth are on display in the things that he does. And ultimately, it means that God's goodness is on display, even when my finite mind cannot see all the facets of that goodness. It would be as if you were sitting somewhere looking at a square and all you can see is that square. But if you zoomed out and had a bigger perspective, you would see that what you're actually looking at is a cube with multiple sides. That if you could look from a different perspective, you would be able to see different facets of that same square. When we're looking at scripture, when we're looking at the world around us, when we're interacting with the things that come into our lives or the things that we see happen on the news, oftentimes, most often, we only see a square. Remember from a couple weeks ago, God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. While we're looking at a two-dimensional square, he's working with a three-dimensional cube, which means even though my mind can't grasp how that square could possibly fit in with all of who God is, he's holding an entire cube saying, if you could see it all, you would understand. I have to be willing to submit to that. 
I have to be willing to submit to that when I come to difficult passages of scripture. I have to be willing to submit to that when I interact with the challenging things that come into my own life. And I have to be willing to submit to that when I look at all the brokenness that exists in the world around me on the news or in the lives of the people that I'm close to, which brings me to my second reminder. Sin is real. We have to allow for that reality throughout all the happenings in scripture, throughout all the happenings in our own life, and throughout all the happenings in the world. That means when we read the Old Testament, we have to remind ourselves that war is a evidence of sin. Take yourself back to the garden, Adam and Eve, living in perfect relationship with one another and perfect relationship with God. There's, there's no war or killing that's going to happen in that place. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sin enters into the world. Genesis 3, that's the fall. What happens in Genesis 4? They've got two sons. One kills the other. And now the story of Scripture, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the coming of Jesus and in everything we see after the coming of Jesus in Scripture and everything that we've seen after the coming of Jesus in this world, since the fall is the story of God in his grace and in his mercy, yet without compromising his justice, his justness and his righteousness, overcoming the reality of sin. And so when we read scripture, sin is present. Evidence of sin is present. Opposition to God is present. Just think about Haman's actions in the book of Esther chapter 9, or in the book of Esther. Though never outside the sway of God's sovereignty and his providential work, pretty much Everything Haman does is motivated by sin. Everything we see happen that sets most of the book into action is just riddled with Haman's sin. We see sin in Mordecai. We see sin in Esther. We see sin in King Ahasuerus. We see sin in Haman. It exists all over the place. And God, in his righteousness and holiness and justness, but also in his kindness and his grace and his mercy, is working to overcome the effects of sin on behalf of his people. We can see the reality of sin in scripture and in our world and grieve its presence. In fact, as a redeemed people who have the Holy Spirit alive and at work within us, we ought to see and grieve the presence of sin, longing for the day when it's no more. Which brings me to number three. A spiritual battle rages today. Ephesians 6, if you want to jot that down, is one of Scripture's clearest pictures of the reality that we're still engaged in a battle against that which stands opposed to God. But it also reminds us that we don't fight against flesh and blood today. Our battle as followers of Jesus is not with fellow fallen sinful human beings. Let me say that again. Our battle as followers of Jesus is not against fellow fallen, sinful human beings. Ephesians 6 reminds us of this. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God. Our battle what we are engaged in is a spiritual battle against the realities of sin for the sake of those who are fallen. 
We don't fight against fallen people. We're not agents of God's judgment against those that he is ultimately going to judge. Christ went to the cross to pay the price for that. Now we as followers of Jesus suit up in the armor of God that we might fight against sin, empowered by the Holy Spirit and motivated by the gospel on behalf of those who are trapped in sin. That is the reason why, as followers of Jesus, we've got to be willing to call sin, sin. We have to be willing to talk about the brokenness that exists in our world and present the gospel as the ultimate remedy for it. We have to be willing to fight against sin, not against people. We don't engage in an Esther 9 kind of physical fight, but we wake up every single day We put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, and we go to battle against sin and brokenness and evil in ourselves and in the world on behalf of those who are lost. Praying that God in his grace would draw people to himself as we point out the realities of sin and the beauty of a savior. Which brings me to number four. We fight from victory, not for it. The outcome is certain. It was one on the cross and when Jesus resurrected out of the grave. That reality changes our motivation and our disposition. We aren't fighting to be saved ourselves. We are not fighting because we think that we can save others. We fight because we have been saved and Jesus will save others. We must have that motivation correct. God is good. Sin is real. A spiritual battle rages today. Oftentimes, the Old Testament presents to us a picture of what the physical outworking of that looks like. Revelation presents a picture of what the physical outworking of that battle looks like. And now we today engage in that spiritual battle against sin, not against people, for the sake of those who are lost, and we fight from victory, not for victory. In the middle of that, there's a way to find comfort. Comfort from the gospel, comfort from the truth of who Jesus is. Let's look at verses 18 down to 28. But the Jews in Susa had assembled on the 13th and the 14th days of the month. They rested on the 15th day of the month, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. This explains why the rural Jews who live in villages observe the 14th day of the month of Adar as a time of rejoicing and feasting. It is a holiday when they send gifts to one another. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews in all of King Ahasuerus' provinces, both far and near. He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar every year, because during those days, the Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the practice they had begun as Mordecai had written them to do. For Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He cast the poor, that is the lot, to crush and destroy them. But when the matter was brought before the king, he commanded by letter that the evil plan Haman had devised against the Jews return on his own head and that he should be hanged with his sons on the gallows. For this reason, these days are called Purim, from the word poor. Because of all the instructions in this letter, as well as what they had witnessed and what happened to them, the Jews bound themselves, their descendants, and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days, each and every year, according to the written instructions and according to the time approved. These days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, family, province, and city, so that the days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life. 
and their memory will not fade from their descendants. This battle is won in Persia and Mordecai issues another command, his, his second edict, and it's an edict that we celebrate this victory. Why? Verse 28 tells us, so that these days will not lose their significance in Jewish life. And so Purim, even up to right now, is celebrated every year within the Jewish calendar. It's a two-day festival. It usually takes place at the end of February or the beginning of March. Every year. It's slotted in right along with other Jewish festivals. Similar to the Exodus account, or the stones that the Israelites are commanded to put into the River Jordan, Purim and the book of Esther is a reminder that was to comfort God's people as they recalled his faithfulness to them. And so as Christians today, in light of the gospel, what can we take from here as a means by which we find comfort and remember and rejoice in the gospel? Well, the first one is this. We've got to remember. Mordecai ordered the people to celebrate every year. It's an interesting aspect of the book of Esther that the name of God is not ever mentioned. It's an interesting aspect of the festival of Purim that God did not command it. Every other festival celebrated in the Jewish calendar, God instituted, God commanded. He said, here's when it is. Here's how you celebrate it. Purim, Mordecai institutes. Watches everything take place the way that it does. And he says, we can't forget this. This is the month when our sorrow turned to rejoicing, when our mourning turned into a holiday. And that is worth remembering. And so brothers and sisters, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, there was a day where your sorrow changed to mourning, where your uh, weeping changed into celebrating, where your mourning became a holiday. That's worth remembering. Maybe you can't pinpoint the exact day I was this many years old and it was February 12th or whatever the case might be because sometimes our salvation happens over a season. That God works in our hearts over a period of time and it's difficult to pinpoint the day. But there was a season or a time where you went from mourning to rejoicing, where you went from sorrow to salvation. That's worth remembering. If you want to have the correct disposition as you live out your Christian life, then remember the gospel every day. Speak it to yourself. Rehearse it to yourself. Rehash what your life was like before Jesus and what your life is like now. Talk through out loud sometimes or write it in a journal. The things that used to be to your sorrow and your mourning and what are now your joy in Jesus Christ. And when you do that, rest. That's number two. Look at verses 16 down to 22. If you just scan really quickly, you'll notice that two words appear two times each. One is the word relief, appears twice in verses 16 and 22. And one is the word rest. That's actually the same Hebrew word. The word is Noah. It's translated differently those two times because of the tense that it's in. Two times we're told that the Jews gained relief from their foes or their opponents. It's passive. Literally, the passage would say they were given rest from their enemies. Twice, the word is rest. They're commanded now to rest. That's active. Two times, Noah was given to them. Two times, they were commanded to experience it or to enter into it. The best illustration I could give is like if you're playing a basketball game, uh, the ball goes out of bounds, you get subbed out. Your coach has now given you rest. You go over to the bench and you sit down and you're grabbing water and you're getting a breather. And in that moment, you're actively resting. It was given to them 
and they were told to engage in it. Relief was given. Relief is commanded. We've been given rest from our greatest enemy. When we think 30,000 foot here, we've been given rest from our great spiritual enemy, the reality of sin and its consequences. And so we can rest in what Christ has done for us. He's given it to us. We can take part in that rest actively. So stop trying, Christian, to earn your salvation. Stop thinking you have to obey in order to uh, earn or achieve what Christ has done for you. Don't be a functional legalist operating under the thought process that your salvation hangs on your obedience to Jesus. If that's the way you're going to live, it'll only ever be miserable and exhausting. There won't be a fullness of joy in your life, just a constant spiritual fatigue. When we remember the truth of the gospel and God's victory on our behalf, we're able to rest. We've been given it and we can enter into it. And when we're remembering and resting, we can rejoice. That's what Mordecai commands the Israelites to do, to celebrate, to feast, to rejoice, to have a holiday. It's the joy that we were talking about last week. Every year within the Jewish calendar, there are built-in times, not just to celebrate joyfully, but to remember its source and to be captivated by its wonder. It's commanded by God. Passover, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, Hanukkah, Purim, all of those are commanded times for the Jews to stop and celebrate, to remember what God has done, rest in his work on their behalf, and celebrate his goodness, his grace, his faithfulness, his mercy, his holiness, his righteousness, his justness, who God is. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that's the call of a Christian every day. What's happened in the gospel is what bookends this passage. Esther 9.1, just the opposite happened. Esther 9.28, don't let that lose its significance. Jesus Christ went to the cross on your behalf to pay the consequence of the sin that your sin deserved, absorbing all of the just and righteous holiness of God so we wouldn't have to. Just the opposite happened. The beauty of the gospel exists in this phrase. Just the opposite happened. And we should never allow that to lose its significance. We build into our Christian calendars two times a year where we should celebrate that, Christmas and Easter. Those weren't commanded by God. Those holidays were instituted by the church. We celebrate Christmas in order to think about the birth of Jesus Christ as coming into the world. We celebrate Easter to reflect on the fact that he was crucified and resurrected on our behalf. If we're honest with ourselves, though, unfortunately, within the American way that we celebrate those two holidays, they often get hijacked by all sorts of other stuff. Instead of remembering Jesus, we have to remember the presence and what time everybody's coming over and did I clean the house? Instead of resting in the work of Christ on our behalf, we're just trying to rest from all the craziness that comes with celebrating those two holidays. And instead of rejoicing in Jesus, we often just rejoice in the thought of the holiday or we rejoice when the holiday is over. Think about communion. That's something that we do on Sunday mornings in order to remember and rest and rejoice in Christ's body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. It's something that I have missed a lot on Sunday mornings that we don't get to do right now because we can't safely distribute elements here in our service. If 
this COVID season does nothing else, I hope it returns us to an appreciation for the gift that communion is instead of just turning it into sort of a rote activity that we do as part of church. When we take communion, I wish we were doing this today, we stop to remember, brothers and sisters, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. Brothers and sisters, this is the blood of Christ poured out for you. Take and drink. Do this in remembrance of him. And we rest because when we remember the gospel, we remember that we don't have to work for our salvation and achieve it. And we rejoice. That's why we always take communion either just before singing in worship or while we're singing in worship so that we can verbally celebrate what we just remembered and rested in. Unfortunately, we allow that to become routine. As followers of Jesus, every Sunday is a weekly opportunity to gather with the people of God in order to remember and rest and rejoice. And unfortunately, oftentimes we turn church into something else. Like I need to go there for self-help. I need to go there for some kind of word of motivation or something like that. No, we come together to just remember the gospel, to rest alongside one another and to rejoice in what Jesus has done for us, to see that in scripture, to sing it in song, to partake in it in communion, to enjoy it in fellowship with one another, to go to God in relationship in response to that in prayer. Let's not allow those things, whether the holidays or the act of communion or our gathering together for church to just become sort of rote, passive things just the opposite happened when we deserved to be judged for our sin and we received grace and mercy. Let's never allow those to lose their significance. I want to take just a minute and um, I'm not, y'all are here, so I'm going to talk to the camera for a second. Most of the statistics that are being put out about church life as we continue to progress through uh, coronavirus and this whole season of social and physical distancing and small gatherings and those kinds of things, most of the statistics say that in churches across America, only like 30% of those who before COVID would have said that they were regular church attenders are now attending church in person. Some of those are for legitimate health reasons. It's not safe for them to go out and to be among a group of people because of their immune system and their uh, compromise in some sort of way that would make that act dangerous for them. That's understandable. The vast majority of the people that have yet to return to church are not returning to church because they realized that Sunday morning at home is kind of nice. They realized that sleeping in is kind of a good thing. The reality is that though, yes, you can watch a sermon online, you can partake in our service online, and we want to be able to provide those for those that for those who need it. The reality, though, is that sitting in your living room and watching church is a vastly different experience than gathering with the church to remember collectively, rest collectively, and rejoice celebratorily with the body of Christ. There's just something different about it. And so if you've been watching from home and your primary reason for watching from home isn't about your immune system. Maybe it's just, I don't want to wear a mask for an hour. Put a mask on and come gather with the body of Christ because rejoicing in the work of Jesus 
is worth getting together for. If your primary reason is because it's kind of nice to sleep in, look, I could take a poll of everyone that's here at 1030 and everyone that was here at eight o'clock and they would all tell you that sleeping in is kind of nice, but being together with the body of Christ is something that God has commanded us to do because there's something special about the gathering of the saints together to remember and rest and rejoice. I wanna read a quote and I'll, I'll end with this. This is from Martin Luther. He's talking about the gathered uh, body of Christ. And he, he says that it was unthinkable for Christians to live in isolation for one another. He says, at my home, in my own house, there's no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. Such fellowship in worship makes vicarious worship from another place tasteless and flat. Technology is a wonderful gift. I'm very thankful that we have the ability to provide this service online to you who cannot be here. But if you can be here, come and remember and rest and rejoice with us. Let's gather together and celebrate the victory that Christ won for us because when we deserved to be judged, just the opposite happened. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and then we'll sing to close our service. God, thank you for your work on our behalf in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the body of Christ and the ability to gather together and to celebrate that. Thank you for the reality that all that you have done throughout history, you've done in perfect accordance with your character. God, that if we could see the whole picture, we would see a perfect combination of your righteousness and holiness and justness alongside your grace and mercy and truth and love and faithfulness, and that you never compromise any one of those things in anything that you do. And we see that primarily through your work on the cross and the giving of your son, who though sinless in and of himself absorbed your righteous just judgment in our place that we might be extended the fullness of your grace and mercy and love. God, would we never forget that? Would we never allow it to lose its significance? Would we rest in the truth of the gospel? And would we at every opportunity in all the facets of our lives rejoice in its wondrous truth? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Stand up and sing together.